Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. Our selection this time, The Face in the Target by G.K. Chesterton, read by Perry F. Bruns, Part 1. Harold March, the rising reviewer and social critic, was walking vigorously across a great tableland of moors and commons, the horizon of which was fringed with the far-off woods in the famous estate of Torwood Park. He was a good-looking young man in tweeds, with very pale curly hair and pale clear eyes. Walking in wind and sun in the very landscape of liberty, he was still young enough to remember his politics and not merely try to forget them. For his errand to Torwood Park was a political one. It was the place of appointment named by no less a person than the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Howard Horne then introducing his so-called socialist budget, and prepared to expound it in an interview with so promising a penman. 
Harold March was the sort of man who knows everything about politics and nothing about politicians. He also knew a great deal about art, letters, philosophy, and general culture. About almost everything indeed, except the world he was living in. Abruptly, in the middle of those sunny and windy flats, he came upon a sort of cleft almost narrow enough to be called a crack in the land. It was just large enough to be the watercourse for a small stream, which vanished at intervals under green tunnels of undergrowth, as if in a dwarfish forest. Indeed, he had an odd feeling as if he were a giant looking over the valley of the pygmies. When he dropped into the hollow, however, the impression was lost. The rocky banks, though hardly above the height of a cottage, hung over and had the profile of a precipice. As he began to wander down the course of the stream, in idle but romantic curiosity, and saw the water shining in short strips between the great grey boulders and bushes as soft as great green mosses, he fell into quite an opposite vein of fantasy. It was rather as if the earth had opened and swallowed him into a sort of underworld of dreams, and when he became conscious of a human figure dark against the silver stream, sitting on a large boulder and looking rather like a large bird, it was perhaps with some of the premonitions proper to a man who meets the strangest friendship of his life. The man was apparently fishing, or at least was fixed in a fisherman's attitude with more than a fisherman's immobility. March was able to examine the man almost as if he had been a statue for some minutes before the statue spoke. He was a tall, fair man, cadaverous, and a little lackadaisical, with heavy eyelids and a high-bridged nose. When his face was shaded with his wide white hat, his light moustache and lithe figure gave him a look of youth. But the Panama lay on the moss beside him and the spectator could see that his brow was prematurely bald, and this, combined with a certain hollowness about the eyes, had an air of headwork and even headache. But the most curious thing about him, realized after a short scrutiny, was that, though he looked like a fisherman, he was not fishing. He was holding, instead of a rod, something that might have been a landing net which some fishermen use, but which was much more like the ordinary toy net which children carry, and which they generally use indifferently for shrimps or butterflies. He was dipping this into the water at intervals, gravely regarding its harvest of weed or mud, and emptying it out again. "'No, I haven't caught anything,' he remarked calmly, as if answering an unspoken query. When I do, I have to throw it back again, especially the big fish. But some of the little beasts interest me when I get them. A scientific interest, I suppose, observed March. Of a rather amateurish sort, I fear, answered the strange fisherman. I have a sort of hobby, which they call phenomena of phosphorescence. But it would be rather awkward to go about in society carrying stinking fish. I suppose it would said March with a smile. Rather odd to enter a drawing-room carrying a large, luminous cod, continued the stranger, in his listless way. How quaint it would be if one could carry it about like a lantern, 
or have little sprats for candles. Some of the sea beasts would really be very pretty like lampshades, the blue sea snail that glitters all over like starlight, and some of the red starfish really shine like red stars. But naturally I'm not looking for them here. March thought of asking him what he was looking for, but feeling unequal to a technical discussion at least as deep as the deep-sea fishes, he returned to more ordinary topics. Delightful sort of hole this is, he said. This little dell and river here. It's like those places Stevenson talks about where something ought to happen. I know, answered the other. I think it's because the place itself, so to speak, seems to happen and not merely to exist. Perhaps that's what old Picasso and some of the Cubists are trying to express by angles and jagged lines. Look at that wall like low cliffs that juts forward, just at right angles to the slope of turf sweeping up to it. That's like a silent collision. It's like a breaker in the backwash of a wave. March looked at the low-browed crag overhanging the green slope and nodded. He was interested in a man who turned so easily from the technicalities of science to those of art, and asked him if he admired the new angular artists. As I feel it, the cubists are not cubist enough, replied the stranger. I mean, they're not thick enough. By making things mathematical, they make them thin. Take the living lines out of that landscape, simplify it to a right angle, and you flatten it out to a mere diagram on paper. Diagrams have their own beauty, but it is of just the other sort. They stand for the unalterable things, the calm, eternal, mathematical sort of truths. What somebody calls the white radiance of... He stopped, and before the next word came, something had happened almost too quickly and completely to be realized. From behind the overhanging rock came a noise and rush like that of a railway train and a great motor-car appeared. It topped the crest of cliff, black against the sun, like a battle-chariot rushing to destruction in some wild epic. March automatically put out his hand in one futile gesture, as if to catch a falling teacup in a drawing-room. For the fraction of a flash it seemed to leave the ledge of rock like a flying ship. Then the very sky seemed to turn over like a wheel and it lay a ruin amid the tall grasses below, a line of grey smoke going up slowly from it into the silent air. A little lower, the figure of a man with grey hair lay tumbled down the steep green slope, his limbs lying all at random, and his face turned away. The eccentric fisherman dropped his net and walked swiftly toward the spot, his new acquaintance following him, as they drew near, there seemed a sort of monstrous irony in the fact that the dead machine was still throbbing and thundering as busily as a factory, while the man lay so still. He was unquestionably dead. The blood flowed in the grass from a hopelessly fatal fracture at the back of the skull, but the face, which was turned to the sun, was uninjured and strangely arresting in itself. It was one of those cases of a strange face so unmistakable as to feel familiar. We feel somehow that we ought to recognize it, even though we do not. 
It was of the broad square sort with great jaws, almost like that of a highly intellectual ape. The wide mouth shut so tight as to be traced by a mere line. The nose short with the sort of nostrils that seemed to gape with an appetite for the air. The oddest thing about the face was that one of the eyebrows was cocked up at a much sharper angle than the other. March thought he had never seen a face so naturally alive as that dead one, and its ugly energy seemed all the stranger for its halo of hoary hair. Some papers lay half-fallen out of the pocket, and from among them March extracted a card-case. He read the name on the card aloud. Sir Humphrey Turnbull! I'm sure I've heard that name somewhere. His companion only gave a sort of a little sigh and was silent for a moment, as if ruminating. Then he merely said, The poor fellow is quite gone, and added some scientific terms in which his auditor once more found himself out of his depth. As things are, continued the same curiously well-informed person, it will be more legal for us to leave the body as it is until the police are informed. In fact, I think it will be well if nobody except the police is informed. Don't be surprised if I seem to be keeping it dark from some of our neighbors round here. Then, as if prompted to regularize his rather abrupt confidence, he said, I've come down to see my cousin at Torwood. My name is Horn Fisher. Might be a pun on my pottering about here, mightn't it? Is Sir Howard Horn your cousin? asked March. I'm going to Torwood Park to see him myself. Only about his public work, of course, and the wonderful stand he is making for his principles. I think this budget is the greatest thing in English history. If it fails, it will be the most heroic failure in English history. Are you an admirer of your great kinsman, Mr. Fisher? Rather, said Mr. Fisher, he's the best shot I know. Then, as if sincerely repentant of his nonchalance, he added, with a sort of enthusiasm, No, but really, he's a beautiful shot. As if fired by his own words, he took a sort of leap at the ledges of the rock above him, and scaled them with a sudden agility in startling contrast to his general lassitude. He had stood for some seconds on the headland above, with his aquiline profile under the Panama hat, relieved against the sky and peering over the countryside, before his companion had collected himself sufficiently to scramble up after him. The level above was a stretch of common turf on which the tracks of the fated car were ploughed plainly enough, but the brink of it was broken as with rocky teeth, Broken boulders of all shapes and sizes lay near the edge. It was almost incredible that anyone could have deliberately driven into such a death-trap, especially in broad daylight. "'I can't make head or tail of it,' said March. "'Was he blind or blind drunk?' "'Neither, by the look of him,' replied the other. "'Then it was suicide.' "'It doesn't seem a cosy way of doing it,' remarked the man called Fisher." Besides, I don't fancy poor old Puggy would commit suicide somehow. Poor old who? inquired the wondering journalist. Did you know this unfortunate man? Nobody knew him exactly, 
replied Fisher, with some vagueness. But one knew him, of course. He'd been a terror in his time, in Parliament and the courts and so on, especially in that row about the aliens who were deported as undesirables, when he wanted one of them hanged for murder. He was so sick about it that he retired from the bench. Since then he mostly motored about by himself. But he was coming to Torwood too for the weekend, and I don't see why he should deliberately break his neck almost at the very door. I believe Hoggs, uh, I mean my cousin Howard, was coming down specially to meet him. Torwood Park doesn't belong to your cousin? inquired March. No, it used to belong to the Winthrops, you know, replied the other. Now a new man's got it, a man from Montreal named Jenkins. Hoggs comes for the shooting. I told you he was a lovely shot. This repeated eulogy on the great social statesman affected Harold March as if somebody had defined Napoleon as a distinguished player of nap. But he had another half-formed impression struggling in this flood of unfamiliar things, and he brought it to the surface before it could vanish. Jenkins, he repeated. Surely you don't mean Jefferson Jenkins, the social reformer. I mean the man who's fighting for the new cottage estate scheme. It would be as interesting to meet him as any cabinet minister in the world, if you'll excuse my saying so. Yes, Hoggs told him it would have to be cottages, said Fisher. He said the breed of cattle had improved too often and people were beginning to laugh. And, of course, you must hang a peerage onto something. Though the poor chap hasn't got it yet. Hello, here's somebody else. They had started walking in the tracks of the car, leaving it behind them in the hollow, still humming horribly like a huge insect that had killed a man. The tracks took them to the corner of the road, one arm of which went on in the same line toward the distant gates of the park. It was clear that the car had been driven down the long straight road, and then, instead of turning with the road to the left, had gone straight on over the turf to its doom. But it was not this discovery that had riveted Fisher's eye, but something even more solid. At the angle of the white road, a dark and solitary figure was standing almost as still as a finger-post. It was that of a big man in rough shooting clothes, bareheaded, and with tousled curly hair that gave him a rather wild look. On a nearer approach, this first more fantastic impression faded. In a full light, the figure took on more conventional colors, as of an ordinary gentleman who happened to have come out without a hat and without very studiously brushing his hair. But the massive stature remained. And something deep and even cavernous about the setting of the eyes redeemed his animal good looks from the commonplace. But March had no time to study the man more closely, for, much to his astonishment, his guide merely observed, Hello, Jack! and walked past him as if he had indeed been a signpost, and without attempting to inform him of the catastrophe behind the rocks. It was relatively a small thing, but it was only the first in a string of singular antics on which his new and eccentric friend was leading him. The man they had passed looked after them in rather a suspicious fashion, but Fisher continued serenely on his way along the straight road that ran past the gates of the great estate. That's John Burke, the traveller, he condescended to explain. 
I expect you've heard of him. Shoots big game and all that. Sorry I couldn't stop to introduce you, but I dare say you'll meet him later on. I know his book, of course, said March with renewed interest. That is certainly a fine piece of description, about their only being conscious of the closeness of the elephant when the colossal head blocked out the moon. Yes, young Halkett writes jolly well, I think. What? Didn't you know Halkett wrote Burke's book for him? Burke can't use anything except a gun, and you can't write with that. Oh, he's genuine enough in his way, you know. As brave as a lion, or a good deal braver by all accounts. You seem to know all about him, observed March with a rather bewildered laugh, and about a good many other people. Fisher's bald brow became abruptly corrugated, and a curious expression came into his eyes. I know too much, he said. That's what's the matter with me. That's what's the matter with all of us and the whole show. We know too much. Too much about one another. Too much about ourselves. That's why I'm really interested just now about one thing that I don't know. And that is? inquired the other. Why that poor fellow is dead. You've been listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production, part of American Immersion Theater. Scott Crampton, executive producer. Audra Schildhouse is our editor. If you haven't already, please take the time to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. It really means a lot to us. And so, until next time, Stay calm. Mystery is everywhere. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM.